0: if you take your Bibles and keep your place in Romans 12. We're continuing our study of this chapter as we start out this fall. And this mini-series in Romans chapter 12 is highlighting the main priorities of Stonehill Church. Last week we looked at knowing who God is and what he's done for us. And what we learned from verses 1 and 2 in Romans 12 is that We will pursue knowing God only if we keep the mercies and grace of God in view. That is what motivates us to pursue a relationship with God. When we see what God has done for us in Jesus, the only reasonable response is to lay our lives out before God. Today we're looking at the second priority we have as a church, which is to love and serve one another in community. Paul, again, in Romans 12, helps lay the foundation for for how we can grow into this community. How we can be more consistently and more comprehensively engaged with one another in this community. And what Paul spells out for us in the text we just read is that to build community in God's church... To have a congregation that loves and serves one another in a growing, more comprehensive and consistent manner, we have to understand how the gospel changes three particular foundations of our thinking and our actions. What we're gonna learn today is three foundations for community. And it's the gospel that gives us these foundations. And so first, we're going to learn that the gospel must change the way you view yourself if we're gonna have community. But secondly, the gospel must change the way you view other people in order for us to grow in community. And finally, the gospel must empower your service to others. So let's look at the foundation. The gospel must change the way you view yourself Take a look at verse three. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. What's important about uh, th- this text is that Paul is, is giving us instruction on, on, on how the gospel must change the way we view ourselves and his instruction is for every single one of us. Notice what he says, for by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you. What it's gonna take for us to grow as a community, it's gonna take every single one of us internalizing the, this gospel identity that ought to change the way we think of ourselves. Now, Paul mentions that there are two ways that the gospel ought to change the way you view yourself. First, Paul tells us that the, 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 the gospel can help you stop thinking of yourself too highly. Notice what he says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. One of the barriers to to all Christian fellowship is that all of us have a tendency to think about ourselves way too much. We can be very self-absorbed. Pride is the enemy of building community among God's people. C.S. Lewis says it this way, there is one vice which no man in the world is free from, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, maybe except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault that makes a man more unpopular, no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the vice I'm talking about is pride or self conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. This is foundational to building community together. We are not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And the solution to this most basic human problem is to let the gospel define you. Remember what we talked about last week in Romans 12:1. It's precisely because God has poured out his mercy on us, his grace on us, and he poured out his grace on us, people who were sinful, and that changes everything about us. It's not we who are, are now great. It's, it's, it's the identity, our gospel identity, which brings us into a right relationship with God. And we did nothing to acquire that. Nothing to receive that. And when you see how God has graciously provided a way for you to get right with God despite your sinfulness, you can see that your new gospel identity is based on what God thinks of you. It's Jesus plus nothing Now, let me try to help you see if you are viewing yourself too highly than you ought to think. Let me help you ask two questions about yourself that can help you determine if you are thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Here's the first question. How do you respond to criticism? If you're thrown by criticism, you're thinking too highly of yourself. You're looking to other people to validate you rather than looking at Jesus to validate you through the cross of Jesus Christ. Swollen egos are often fragile egos. So what happens when someone criticizes you? Do you get defensive? Are you really good at listing all of the ways that this criticism is invalid? Is that the first place you go to? Does it bother you? Do you struggle with it? Do you think about the person who criticized you and you think about, well, I wish I would've told them that or this, or do you often think, hey, they criticize me, but guess what, the next time we get together, I'm gonna criticize them. You struggle with dealing with criticism. You're thinking of yourself too highly The gospel is not making the kind of inroads into your internal life that you need. And because you're thinking of yourself too highly, you are not going to be able to participate in the community that God is trying to build here at Stonehill. The second question is, how do you respond when you're not recognized for your achievements, for the things you've done? Have you ever been in a situation where people are talking about this project at work that was happening so well and you were a major part of it and yet nobody mentioned your name but they mentioned the names of the other people that were involved? What about even here at church? And people talk about, oh, there's fantastic ministry that's going on and they list a few of the names but they don't mention you even though you're there every week. Does that grate on you a little bit? Does it get a little frustrating? Again, if it really bothers you, it's probably due to your thinking too highly of yourself. You, you need recognition. You need validation from everyone around you. And the validation that God gives you through Jesus is less important to you. It's not Jesus plus nothing anymore. I think one of the things that can help you in these, uh, uh, with these situations, when somebody criticizes you, even if they're really wrong about the criticism... You know what you probably ought to think about? If that person really knew what you were like, they'd have a lot more legitimate criticisms they could make. And so you take it. But there's a second way that the gospel helps to change the way you view yourself. Notice what it says in verse three again. We're not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, that's, that's the, the, the first part of, 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 of learning to let the gospel define who you are. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now many commentators will say this, this either means, what, what Paul's referring to, is to think with sober judgment means remind yourself of the cross, that's what God thinks of you, so let that be your fundamental identity, that could be true, and probably is by application. It can also mean simply being content with the measure of faith that God has given you, being satisfied with how God is working in your life, not comparing yourself to everyone. Being content with where God has you in your walk with Christ. Now I think some of us, in in order to deal with our pride, which we kinda understand we shouldn't be prideful, we think that the solution uh, to, to not viewing yourself more highly than you ought to think is to downgrade yourself. You've all met people like this. You try to talk to them, they've done some great thing. You try to encourage them and thank them and they say, oh, it was nothing. Oh, don't thank me. Oh, my contribution was nil on this. And they're just constantly downgrading themselves, constantly uh, self-criticizing themselves. And that is not the way to pursue humility. The reality is, is that the more we diminish our legitimate achievements and contributions, we are evidencing actually a lack of humility. Tim Keller, again, talking about C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, talks about the, 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 the incredible, brilliant observation that C.S. Lewis makes about false humility. C.S. Lewis says this, if we were to meet a truly humble person, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. Think about that. I mean, what would you think if I told you all I wrote a book that would surprise some of you. It was, it was a picture book. And the title of my book was, Humility and How I Attained It. <laughs> Lewis says, if you're, if you're actually in the presence of a humble person, you'd never, you'd never leave there thinking they were humble. In fact, when you meet someone uh, that's humble, they would not be telling you over and over again they were a nobody. Because a person who keeps saying they're a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-centered, humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is simply thinking of myself less. We truly gain our identity from the gospel and what Christ has done. We don't need to keep thinking about ourselves. We don't need to connect things with myself, and, 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 and we don't have to, to connect every experience and everything in our life is all, is all about me. In fact, when we're truly humble, we stop thinking about ourselves. And Tim Keller goes on to say, this is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. The blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. And I would say that this is something we all need to think about because some of us are thinking too highly of ourselves and so we have pride, we look down on people. Others of us are are self-deprecating all the time. But at the end of the day, both people are thinking a lot about themselves. Tim Keller wrote a little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And if you struggle with pride, and let me assure you, you probably do. You may have to get that book this afternoon. The gospel helps us to think less about us and more about others. This is the first foundation to building community. The gospel must change the way each of us think about ourselves. And that's the first foundation. Let's look at the second foundation. The gospel must change the way we view others. Look at verses four and five. Paul describes the community, the church, by comparing it to the human body. He says, for as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we though many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Paul is describing the corporate nature of the body of Christ that believers in Jesus Christ are part of. And just like the human body has all kinds of different parts to it, they all work together because they're part of that same body. All of the parts of the body are essential to the functioning of the human body. Paul then mentions that the members do not all have the same function. Each part is important. Each member is important. We all have our unique contribution to make to this one body. And the body does not function well unless each part is functioning consistent with their design. At the end of verse five, Paul says, individually we are members of one another. There's an interdependence built into the nature of God's church. We are not simply a bunch of individuals who meet, but individually, so that each of us can get what we need individually to live out the gospel by ourselves. There's a mutual interdependence. And we cannot be all that we need to be unless we are pursuing Jesus together in community. And I I, I must say, this teaching runs counterintuitive to the culture in which we live. I think most of us are individualists It's very difficult in our context to, to grasp the reality That we need every other person in this room And yet every other person in this room Needs us Too many believers can come to a church And you know what they're doing? They want to get what they need So they can get out of here And then have a good week So they can, that they will live out mostly on their own Paul says that is completely counter to what God is trying to do. Because the church is interdependent, we must come to the community of believers not simply to receive the things that we need personally so that we can follow Jesus better on our own. We need to come together so that we, yes, we need to receive certain things, but also we come so that we can give to others. You must come ready to serve others because we are in this together as a community of believers. We are not simply a collection of individuals. So let me ask you a few questions. Just think about how you came to church today. When you, you arrive mor- for this Sunday morning service, are you thinking about what you might receive or about what you can give? primarily are you looking to encourage someone else are you looking to greet someone new or are you simply looking to meet the people that you know your friends your acquaintances are you coming into the atrium looking to to serve someone and connect with someone or are you looking into the atrium to see how fast you can walk through the atrium and get out without having to speak to anyone Do you come early enough to church so that you can greet other people? Or do you like to slide in about 9, 10? Leave right at 10. Run out the door. Are you taking the next step to serve in some capacity to connect to another smaller group of believers here at Stone Hill? Are you you thinking about other people more than you're thinking about yourself? Again, it's the gospel of Jesus that pulls us into this direction. What did Jesus say? Jesus, who was the son of God, said, I I came not to be served, but to serve. And of course, what what does Jesus say in John 13? He says, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Another, the quality of our relationships with one another, the breadth and depth of those relationships, the quality of the fellowship here at Stone Hill will go a long way to display the beauty and glory of who God is. God himself exists in perfect community. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For all eternity, he's in, they've enjoyed that communion. And now they've asked us to share in that communion. Not so that we could get what we need personally. And then you know, live our personal lives better. So that we would display to the world. The beauty of that communion. That God himself has with himself. And have that played out here at Stonehill Church. That's the second foundation for building a community. We must let the gospel change the way we view other people. Now the third foundation. The gospel must empower your service to others. In Romans 12, 6 through 8 there are seven different spiritual gifts mentioned. Let me read them to you. Verse six, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And then the verses nine through 15, there's some instruction to, to help all of us live out the beauty of the gospel changing our view of ourselves by the gospel changing our view of others and then serving one another now for full disclosure I grew up in a church where we believed and taught that these were the seven sort of motivational gifts that each person in the church had one of these we were so committed to this again I wasn't the pastor then I was a kid okay we had name tags if you were a regular attender of the church and you had a dot with a different color to specify what your spiritual gift was. Does that sound a little creepy? (laughs) Stop criticizing my childhood. I I enjoyed it very much. Well, whether each of us have one of these necessarily, certainly, There's all kinds of spiritual gifts mentioned in the New Testament. There's all kinds of ministry that you can be involved in, but let's just take the text as we have it. Let's assume for a minute that you've had a health crisis and you were rushed to the hospital and and you, you, you survived and now your doctor has sent you to Merwick Rehab Center. You're gonna be in there for three weeks. That sounds like a lot of fun. And let's just assume that there are seven different Stonehill people with each of these seven gifts is kind of, kind of the way they, that motivates them into ministry and they show up to visit you in the rehab center. I want to show you how, the, just in this one list of gifts, how many needs God can meet through seven people with these seven different gifts. So I'm going to start from the bottom of the list and work back forward so the, f- the last gift there that, that's mentioned uh, in, in verse 8 is the gift of mercy people who have the gift of mercy are people who are very adept at understanding the emotional needs of other people they're often the barometers they can walk into a room and they can know immediately who's hurting they can see it they can sense it And they're also deeply concerned with getting you to talk about where you are emotionally. And so when that gift of mercy comes to you, this person, they're going to find out how you're doing, how you're feeling. And it's going to be a very lovely visit because they're going to wonder about how you're feeling. They may even ask questions about your family who's there to find out how the caregivers are feeling. And they will offer you tremendous amount of encouragement as they meet the emotional needs of your situation there at Merwick Rehab Center. You go back up to the, to the, 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 the next gift, and, and that is this, it's the, pers- the one who leads. Another way to put it is the one who has gifts of administration. Someone with the gift of administration shows up, they're adept at organizing ministry, organizing things. And of course you might think, oh great, they're gonna organize my rehab center room. organize the cards put the flowers in a different place but the reality is someone with the gift of administration is going to show up and i can i i've seen this in an operation that person is liable to go down to the lobby of the merwick rehab center make a few calls and organize more care for you they're going to find out that you, you've got a need. No one can mow your lawn, right? So they're going to get someone to go mow your lawn. They're going to get someone to bring some books to you because you're bored. They're going to, they're going to uh, you know, figure out how to get your mail. They're going, to, they're going to organize other people to help care for you while you're there for those three weeks. The next gift is the gift of giving. Those with the gift of giving are are, are deeply concerned, motivationally, to meet the financial needs of of, of places and people. It's not necessarily that the person with the gift of giving has a lot of money. They are simply generous, and they often are good at encouraging other people to give. So the person with the gift of giving shows up. I actually saw this one time, I was visiting someone in a rehab center and a person came in, I didn't know they had the gift of giving, I I think they had the gift of giving. While we're talking and I'm trying to encourage them because I have the gift of exhortation, the person with the gift of giving came in and out of the blue says, is your insurance paying for all this? I was like, what? We, We didn't learn to do that at seminary, what kind of question is that? Stick to the Bible. person also asked the question, are, are you getting sick days? Are you getting paid for your time out? Are you losing income? And that was true for this person that I was visiting. That person with the gift of giving, without telling anybody else, goes out, makes a few phone calls. The benevolence team gets called by the person with the gift of giving, but also several other people. And they do a little mini uh, love offering for this family where the primary breadwinner was laid up for three weeks. That's the gift of giving. Next person to visit you has the gift of exhortation. This person wants you to apply God's word. This is a person who wants to motivate you to apply God's word. And that person may visit you in the rehab center and that person may actually encourage you to see your stay at the rehab center as a place of ministry and ask you these kinds of questions. Who can you share with? How about the technicians? How about the nurses? How about the the doctors? How about the other patients? This is an opportunity for you to be a sharer of the good news of the gospel with other people. The next person that shows up has the gift of teaching. Now, my understanding of this gift is not everybody has to have the gift of teaching to be a teacher. But the person with the gift of teaching is concerned that God's word is accurately shared. They're concerned about the meanings of words. And this person is going to come to your room and they probably will pick out a passage of scripture and they'll walk you through it. They may even explain it to you. It may be a mini-sermon. But you need that. Because it will be a passage of scripture you need to internalize while you're in this place of suffering. The next person who shows up has the gift of serving. People with the gift of serving are concerned about meeting the practical needs of people. And they're gonna be really concerned that your, your, your lawn needs to be mowed and you don't have reading material. And hopefully these people with the gift of serving will link up with the people with the gift of administration and the administrators can organize the servants. But even if they don't, the people with the gift of serving are going to find out a physical need you have and they're going to meet it. And lastly, the person with the gift of prophecy. And I know you read this and you think, oh, this is the person who foretells the future. Is this the person that the person asks and says, am I going to get well or is it over? Well... Yeah, there is Old Testament prophets, there's some New Testament prophets, but I think in this context, the person with the gift of prophecy has this desire to boldly proclaim the word of God to people and to situations. These are the kinds of people who are constantly calling the church to repentance and sometimes they look out at issues beyond the church and say the church needs to speak into that because this is unrighteous. And the person with the to give to prophecy might be very bold with you and might look at you and say something like this. What do you think God's trying to teach you while you're here? They might even ask you, is God trying to show you something in your life that, 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 to, to fix here? I had that happen to me. I was in the hospital for a month. And I had the person with the gift of prophecy came in, and that's what they told me. And they were very quick to say, I'm not saying your broken arm is because you sinned, but is there some sin you need to deal with? That's, when they left, I called up the gift of mercy and said, could you come more often? (laughs) But notice this. Seven gifts, just seven. There's many other things that could be done. But do you realize if just seven people came and visited you and exercised the spiritual gifts we read about in Romans 12, do you see the holistic care that would happen for the person who's laid up for three weeks at the Merwick Center? You've got the word of God going into somebody's life. You've got people encouraging and motivating them to apply God's word. You've got people worried about the financial needs. People are worried about the emotional needs. People are worried about the physical needs. People organizing your care. People asking you the hard questions that you need to be asked. What a blessing the church of Jesus Christ can be. But it requires that all of us are exercising the gifts that God has given us. That we don't stay isolated. That we allow God by the Spirit to use our gifts. And we need all of the gifts. Can you imagine if the seven people who visited you at the, at the, at the rehab center, all of them had the gift of prophecy? One after another? What sin would cause this? You know, what's God trying to teach? I mean, that would be a very long stay. You probably would call the church and say, I don't need any more care, thank you. But when all of us, with our different gifts, are using our gifts together, the amount of care and the breadth of care is phenomenal. And believe me, not only is the person at Merwick Rehab Center cared for, but there's a watching world that sees this in action. I can't tell you how many times I've visited someone in the hospital, and these days you've gotta you know, check in, and you know, every, you, you, the security's much tighter than it used to be. And, and I'll say, well, I'm, vo- I'm going to visit room 212, and the person will say, are you from Stonehill Church? Yep. There's been 15 people who've come here today. The watching world sees The beauty of the love of God's people operating together that demonstrates the beauty and glory of the love that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been experiencing from all eternity. The gospel must challenge us and impel us to serve one another in community. Let me pray. Dear Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us by your spirit through the word of God, through the gospel, Lord, to change the way we view ourselves. Lord, we are, we all struggle with self-absorption, Lord. We are all very focused on ourselves. We either look down on others because we're thinking about too highly than we ought to think, but sometimes we downgrade ourselves, but it's all about us. We've forgotten our gospel identity. We've forgotten what, who really validates us, which is Jesus Christ, and why we, we've been validated through the death and resurrection of Christ. Lord, your gospel teaches us to view one another differently. We're not simply here as individuals trying to do better in our walk with Christ. We are here together. We need everyone else in this room, and everyone else in this room needs us. And when we think like that, it propels us to use our God-given gifts for other people. And there's a diversity of needs, there's a diversity of gifts, and it requires each of us to be involved passionately, persistently, using the very things that God has given us to do to serve one another so that this Body of believers, so we at Stone Hill can display the beauty and glory of the love that our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has been enjoying from all eternity. Help us, Lord, by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.